Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us today. If you have been listening to us for some time now, you have probably heard in the past some of our discussions with folks from Stanford Center for Deliberative Democracy. They are the academic center that conducted America in One Room, an experiment in 2019 that brought together 526 Americans from across the country to talk in small groups about policy and to see where people really kind of line up and whether in small group deliberative discussion they could come to some kind of agreement. Today, we're talking to Alice Hsu, who is the Associate Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy. Alice is a PhD uh, in communication. She received that from Stanford, and she focuses on political communication and deliberative democracy and public opinion. And she also has degrees in economics and public policy and political science, all from Stanford. She is now the host of the podcast, Voices of America in One Room. And we're going to talk about that in our conversation, but the bottom line is Alice has the very cool job of talking to people who participated in the experiment in 2019 and seeing what has happened since they participated and since they had this experience that has gotten a lot of attention in the news. And particularly given everything that has happened between September of 2019 and today, which is June of 2021, what have they learned? What have they taken away? And what have they applied to their lives? I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm going to start by being a little bit of a fangirl here because um, the... I want to talk first about the original experiment that led sure. to what you're doing on the podcast. But I mean, going backwards, I can tell you the the experiment, American One Room, that was originally held in September of 2019, right? Yes. So I first found out about it when the New York Times had, and I think it was in the weekend paper, you know, a whole section was on the cover of that section had portraits of the 500, it's 526 people who participated. That's right. And I read about it and I thought, oh, how cool that is. And then eventually, you know, we talked to Jim and Larry uh, and had a live episode with them. But I remember thinking, this is so cool to have an opportunity to talk to somebody about this great experiment. And then now to have you doing this follow-up for it. I'm super, super excited to talk to you about it. So let's start there. Could you talk about American One Room, the original experiment, what it entailed, and then we'll move on from there into, you know, what you're doing now? Of course. American One Room, as, as you just said, was held in September of 2019. And for that, we invited 526 people um, to all gather together in Dallas, Texas uh, for a four-day event. So basically, they all arrived in Dallas, checked into this amazing resort, and we're not allowed to leave for four days. Um, and uh, it was an all expenses paid um, for the participants, including on top of that, an honorarium for each person. 
Um, and we made accommodations for you know, spouses, childcare, dependent care, family care, anything really to ensure that everyone had a chance to come if they actually wanted to come. And that made for an extremely representative national sample that we got. Um, as you just said, um, as evident from the New York Times um, coverage of the event, you saw all of the pictures of the participants and it was very striking. Even for me, um, you know, even though I was there, I yeah. didn't get to see all of the faces. Yeah. It's very striking to see their, um, where they're from. And uh, they did a survey beforehand, before they came. They got briefing materials that were vetted by a committee of experts and advisory groups. And then um, on arrival, basically they met in their groups and we started, they got to work. They, we yeah. had five different topics, immigration, healthcare, foreign policy, economy, and environment. And they were all pretty heavy duty topics, each with about 10 different policy proposals. And they sat together uh, in the same groups for the entire uh, four days and really worked out how these different policies impact them, people around them, people at large. Um, and it was really exciting yeah. to see. Um, and we had panels too of uh, experts that helped answer questions they developed in their small groups. And we also had uh, five then presidential candidates, three uh, Republican candidates and two Democratic candidates show up and answer questions as well. And then at the end of all of it, they completed a post survey before they left. And um, you may have seen, so a year later, we did a follow-up survey, which the New York Times also covered. Um, and incidentally, close to the 2020 election. And it showed a lot of vote intention information about the people that completed that follow-up survey. And, um, and then we did decided to do the um, follow-up podcast yeah. to deep dive with uh, several of the participants. This is, I mean, this is really exciting. I want to get into those stories because I think that it's just I mean, you're, you are a researcher and, and the opportunity to go back and not only follow up, but hear somebody actually talk about right. their experience and everything I think has to be really great. It's not the kind of thing when you're doing research that you always get to do. Absolutely. Um, so let's, let's talk, you're the associate director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy. And I think for a person who hears that, they're going to say, what's deliberative democracy? But I want yes. to talk about that in the context of the experiment. Like the experiment was, and I think it's right to refer to it as an experiment, right? It wasn't, you know, just an event. It was, you, you went into this with a hypothesis, is that true, of what would happen, could happen when you got people into these small groups and showed them lots of different information about policy perspectives? That's true. I mean, this is definitely not our first rodeo. Um, yeah. we, we've done a uh, hundred projects prior to this and in different countries on various different topics. And this particular event was significant because of the size yeah. being one, yeah. being a national event. And also the fact of the timing 
is because we did it in September of 2019, it was well before a lot of the primary chaos mm-hmm. that was happening. And it allowed for participants to think more about issues than about the horse race. Yeah. And so it was significant in, in many ways with in that respect in terms of current events. But experiment absolutely in that because we're in this state in this country that many would say is extremely polarized, a mm-hmm. lot of extreme views. And the question outstanding was, could this help alleviate, moderate, bring people together? Are conservatives and liberals capable of having these substantive discussions together? Or is it really how um, the media portrays the constant yelling back and forth between the different sides. And I think we demonstrated extremely well that average Americans are capable of having civil discussions and come to um, understand each other at the, all, at the end of all of this. So I think that's really important because uh, I, when I read the first New York Times coverage of this, the reporters were asking people after they'd walked out of some of these discussions, well, did you change your mind, right? And, and we had um, a psychologist on last year who has written a book about talking across um, political difference, Tanya Israel. And she said, you know, look, there's a variety of things you can try and accomplish in a conversation. If changing people's minds is what you're trying to accomplish, you ought to be pretty humble about your ability to actually persuade people to take on a different point of view. But there's so much more that we can do in conversation. And if we go into it with the intention that what we really want to do is understand people, that's very different than saying, let me give you all the facts you need to change your point of view. So I thought it was interesting. This reporter is asking people, and to a person, I think everybody they talked to said, no, 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 I didn't change my mind on something politically, but I do now understand somebody who has a different point of view and how they could come to that point of view. Um, and I think that's really important to think about, you know, as you say, we, we have this narrative that there's so much polarization. And I can imagine going into this with this many people in one place, one possibility you can have in mind is that you're going to put all these people together in these groups and there are going to be fights, you know, there might be fist fights, you know, or whatever. I mean, maybe you were prepared for that probably. I don't know, <laughs> but that wasn't your thought process. I mean, for the most part, given what you're doing at the center, my assumption is you went in thinking what we hope we're going to show is exactly what you did, that you can get people who disagree dramatically in some cases together and they can have thoughtful, careful discussion about policy issues. And, and, and so let's talk about some of the people you've talked to since. And that was September of 2019, as you say, before the primaries really started to go, but it was also before COVID it was before George Floyd's murder. I mean, it was before all of these things that have happened that make 2019 seem like it was 10 years ago, not just two years ago, right? You've come back now and you've talked to participants in the program, and that's what the podcast is. And you're catching up with them and they're telling you these amazing stories about what impact that weekend had on their lives. So, you know, um, now that people have been through all of this, 
what what impact did that weekend have? What are the stories people are telling you? Well, lots of stories. And of course, you know, I think some people were more impacted than others. I can't say that the event was so impactful for all 526 people. I think these experiences um, affect people differently. But for the people that were willing to share their stories publicly on the podcast, there were so many. One that jumps to mind now is a retired uh, male from uh, New Jersey in one of the episodes where he very honestly says that he's never met anybody that worked minimum wage, that lived off minimum wage. And that may sound extremely shocking. It's still shocking when I tell mm. a lot of people. But if we think really honestly about ourselves, if we personally are not in a minimum wage job, we may not likely interact with other people that work minimum wage jobs. And I think it's really hard sometimes if you're in a certain socioeconomic class to think about what another or a, another lower socioeconomic class mm -hmm. than you lives their lives. And for him, um, it was just life-changing to hear the stories of a few of the participants in his group where they, he was, they were describing what it's like to live off SNAP, yeah. to receive SNAP, to constantly fight the government for things that they feel like they deserve because they are low income and they are living paycheck to paycheck. And that I think is a, is an exchange of humanity that we don't get on an yeah. everyday basis. Yeah, because um, the interaction you have with somebody mm -hmm. who is in a has different experience than you and is, yep. let's say, in a minimum wage position, you don't think of that as an exchange. Many people would not think of that as an exchange that has, they would not think to talk about these policy issues That's with right. the person that they're having that interaction That's with, right. right? Yeah. And it's really when you have that, and when you have those conversations with those people that are living that reality that you then come to understand that, oh, that's what SNAP is for. It's for people that are in this income bracket and that can't afford X, Y, and Z. Oh, and that's what minimum wage is for, or that's what this policy is for you. Then start to understand why certain policy proposals exist or why they're being proposed because other in other circumstances, you're always, you may always be wondering, well, what type of people need this? Or yeah. I don't understand. Um, and I, you know, on the flip side, um, for, I did have the pleasure of having on the podcast, um, someone who is working minimum wage and is on snap and, and for her, as she was describing her experience, you know, she, um, very candidly said to her group, she came for the money yeah. and the vacation, quote unquote, you know, everyone else may have come for, or the majority may have come for, oh, the experience and to hang out and meet new people. But she just said, I came for the $300 that you would give yeah. me at the end yes. of the weekend. 
And I came for, you know, a weekend away from my kids because you yeah. paid for babysitting. Um, and that was, you know, I think uh, she says that her group laughed and thinking that she was joking, but I think, and then as she described her stories, um, the group started to realize, no, she's, she's serious. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, because one of your uh, other guests says this, right? Somebody said, yeah. oh, I came from the honorarium. And this person yeah. says, I wouldn't walk across the street for that. And, and yes. I don't mean to belittle that, but I mean, that's exactly what she said is I yeah. wouldn't walk across the street for $300 or whatever it was. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and so I think, I mean, just as you described that to think about that. And I think what's great is there, everybody's being honest. They're being candid about this experience and putting a face and a human being with yes. that experience, as opposed to what we, we do so often when we're engaged in discussion about policy is to say those people, right? Whether it's those people on the right or those people on the left or those people who are on snap or those people who don't, you know, who have enough money that they don't have to worry about, you know, um, having somebody give them the honorarium there's no face, there's no personal experience. And then you get these people in the room together and there's 12, 13 people in a room together. Yep. 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 Um, who don't, I was also struck by the number of people who said, I felt, you know, when I got there, I realized I was alone. You know, there was nobody, maybe there was nobody who looked like me. I didn't know anything about these people. I'm complete. I mean, imagining sitting down in a room with 12 total strangers. And the only thing you know about them is that they all came to this thing. like you did. In the um, same not, exact position. <laughs> yeah. And then talking about things that matter to you. But I think, again, as you described, like, you can't say, oh, well, the people who are on SNAP, there's a person who is yeah. getting assistance, right? I think right. that's just, that had to be really powerful for right. you, I'm sure, watching it, but the very, people who were there. Very powerful. And you know, there are a couple people that said, you know, I thought I was going to just go sit there, listen, and just leave with my money. But then realize that, oh, I need to speak up because other people in my group have no idea what my experience is like. They don't know what it's like to work job to job or, or work three jobs or and if they don't share what their experience is like. The, the other members in the group will never know. And they started to realize the purpose of each individual being in the room mm-hmm. and why everyone had to share their experience. Because if they didn't, then no one would know what it would be like to live in a rural community and, you know, have to drive miles for healthcare or, you know, just a variety of different experiences. Um, and the, the one example also that brings to my mind is, um, for one of the retirees that we interviewed, um, she moved from Texas to Cary, North Carolina during the pandemic because she was just, she felt so compelled that she needed to live in a more diverse place than she was at present. And it was just so striking in my conversation with her. She's in her sixties and seventies and She's like, if you don't do anything, you die. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't move and change and keep learning, you just, you'll die. And some people, you know, are content with that, obviously, and they're okay with it. But for her, she's like, I need, I just, I need more. I need to be around people that make me better. I need to hear different voices 
or, or she just would not die a happy person. And I was so struck by that because we all live such lives where we want to be happy and comfortable and at times maybe complacent and and that's okay. Um, And she was quite inspirational in the way that she just described like what she wanted out of life and what was important to her. I, I just found that conversation stunning because she was so thoughtful about being able to say, listen, I, the place I lived, I'm fortunate enough to be able to pick the place I lived and the place I lived, I picked because there were people like me. There were people who thought like me when she originally moved to wherever yeah. she lived in Texas, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and I thought, gosh, that's what most of us want is to be yes. in a place where we feel comfortable, right? Exactly. It can, t- it can definitely turn into complacency, but we probably try not to think of it that way. We try to think about being in a place where we're comfortable, having some stability, you know, trying to minimize the ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here's someone who says, if I do that, I'm not learning anything, you know, Yeah. that so there's a person who says, well, I'm in a place where people are like me. I'm comfortable. You also spoke to at least one person who said, listen, you get to a point in your life where you're kind of isolated, you're disconnected. Right. And that can be in some cases because of age and you're not working. Anymore. But I think even in the discussion, you said, oh, I, I really relate to that. And I was thinking as you were talking to me too, like, you know, I have kids, I have a job, I've got all yeah. these things going on. And it's so easy to consume everything via the internet or whatever it is, and then not actually be confronted, especially during the pandemic, right? Not being confronted face-to-face with something different. And and I think this idea that people experience that that sort of forced togetherness, I mean, it was voluntary, you didn't force anybody to show up, but (laughs) like forced togetherness with people who have different experiences that instead of shirking away from that or coming back from that and saying, I'm going to double down and be back with the people I'm comfortable with. So many of these people said, no, you know what? I went out and did more stuff that made me uncomfortable. That's right. That's right. That's right. And one person um, decided to start doing get out to vote uh, campaigns and someone else said at the minimum, she started reading more newspapers and listening to a variety of more news sources. And that's honestly, that's the least, I mean, that's actually, that's all I could hope for from an an event that they would follow through and just try to engage with news, maybe not even talk to somebody else, but maybe just flip on different channels now and then to see what the other side is saying. Uh, And I'm struck by how much impact the experience had on these participants because, uh, honestly it was, it was a four day event. I mean, four days is really such a small intervention in someone's life when they get back to their day-to-day grind and all the folks that I interviewed, they remember so many details about the people in their group and things that they said, um, and it's funny when you mentioned, um, you know, some reporters going up to people asking if they changed their minds. And a lot of times we, we don't want to admit that we changed our minds, mm-hmm. especially not, maybe not in front of a reporter. And many of the participants also said, well, you know, I don't think I changed my mind, 
But when we go into the data, we do see they indeed change their mind. <laughs> they definitely change because we got extremely um, dramatic results on opinion changes. And so it's, it, it was an event that changed how they thought, how they viewed other people. And I think the most lasting effect over the, over the year was the fact that they are willing to continue conversations with other people yeah. Yeah. and, and the openness to do yeah. that, yeah. Um, that didn't exist before. So this, I think, is really key that people continued afterwards and said, let me, let me push myself. Let me mm-hmm. go ahead and continue to right. be right. in uncomfortable situations, yeah. do new things, right? Mm-hmm. Move in one case. Because yeah. I think we, I know we've experienced this, you know, when we talk to funders, we talk to um, just trying to get people in the audience to engage in, in events. We talk about, you know, um, we use it in, in, in marketing things like building a free society, one conversation at a time. And people say, oh, you know, that's great, but it's not scalable, you know? I mean, so what, what good does one conversation at a time do? And I think what you just described is so important. You know, you say it's just four days in somebody's life, but think about those four days with the right set of circumstances, with the right mindset, even if everybody didn't have the same mindset coming in, they didn't necessarily, they weren't there because they necessarily wanted to make the country better, right? Somebody wants the honorarium, somebody thinks, "Eh, I'm curious. You know, you had a lot of people who were like, oh, I Mm -hmm. thought it was a scam. I wasn't sure that it was, you know, when, Mm -hmm. when this was offered to me. It's a short period of time. It's clearly a huge experiment, a huge expense. It's not like, you know, it happened overnight. I understand that. But in the relative like scale of somebody's life, it is a short period of time. And look at the kind of impact it can have. That's right. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason we really wanted to talk to you about this and about these experiences was to say, you know, people think, well, yeah, it would be nice if I could have these conversations. But really, what is just this one conversation or these discussions, like what are they really going to change in the world? We know based on what you just described, more than one person you talk to on the podcast says it changed my life, right? Yeah. Um, in bigger and small ways. So, mm-hmm. so we know that's something it can do. Um, you just talked about political views, political values changing. You've got empirical evidence to back mm-hmm. that up, right? So the power of, of conversation, but not just any conversation, the, you had a briefing book, you had, mm-hmm. you know, I think people who had some experience in facilitating in that. Mm-hmm. What was it about the way those conversations happened and the way they were set up that you think has that kind of impact? And, and can our listeners uh, sort of learn from that a way that they can replicate some of that in their lives? I think the materials played a big role as you're describing. Um, We made a very concerted effort to leave out any references to explicitly political parties or candidates or um, people in office and made it about the issues. So even though, you know, you could have a sentence that said, you know, the Trump administration withdrew from the Paris Agreement. We, we didn't do that. We, we said the United States um, did X, Y, and Z. 
And we really made an effort to remove those references because they didn't, um, they don't add anything to the conversation. And what we want people to really talk about is what they think of about the Paris Agreement and whether they think the U.S. should be a part of it or not. And I think those details made a difference in how the conversations were started and continued. Um, and I think at the broader level, honestly, we made the event an extremely big deal. Um, I think from the start, upon recruitment, we made it known that this is a serious event because we are paying everything. We're giving you an honorarium. We want you to know that you are extremely important and your voice really matters. And so this is not just another town meeting that you show up in your city or, um, you know, and, and just listen to other people. No, this is, this is where you participate and you're going to share your voice. And mm -hmm. we made that very clear to people upon recruitment and, and try to explain to them that this is, this is once in a lifetime, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're pulling out everything to make sure that if they want to come, they are going to come and they're valued. And I yeah. think a lot of people felt that yeah. um, in, in the grandeur of the resort or just in the way we were um, uh, explaining what the event was and how everything was really catered towards the participants. And there was no lecturing or speeches or they just, they weren't sitting there just listening to propaganda or anything like that. Yeah. No, I think those, I think those are two really important things that you just described. One, uh, the briefing book, which because all of this is transparent, I mean, you've got reports on this mm -hmm. and everything. I think yep. the briefing book is available online and we yes. can, we can link to that in the show notes so people can take a look at it and see, um, you know, here's what was used. Maybe you can learn something from this. Maybe you can take something from this, but this point about treating people with respect and being clear that you want to hear their opinions. Mm -hmm. I used to um, work especially with high school teachers and we would, we would bring high school teachers to somewhere other than their home city, right? We would bring them from all over the country and, you know, they'd stay at nice hotels and have discussion about um, readings that we had uh, offered up in advance. And I always remember thinking afterwards, when we go back and ask people like, we were going to get feedback on, well, I didn't like this reading or I didn't like that reading. And mostly what people said was, listen, I'm used to working in the lunchroom, you know, or supervising lunch at the high school, you know, and people throwing food or whatever. You treated me like an intellectual. You treated me like somebody who had something important to say. And you said, go away from your life for a little bit and just focus yeah. on this. And none of these people got into education to be, you know, lunchroom monitors. That's just a part right. of the job. But I think we can learn something from that for our own experiences where, no, we can't all afford to take people to a nice resort and be away for a week or, you know, bring a whole lot of other people, but we can say, let's make some time in our lives to, to set this period of time off as something special, you know, have a nice right. dinner, right. Go to the restaurant yeah. together and let's That's right. talk about things and listen to each other and hear one another's experiences as opposed to thinking, well, we're going to work this all out just in the hallway at the office um, or at lunch talking about, you know, what did you think about what, what, you know, the president said last night or whatever else that there is, 
it's important for this American experiment to work, that we make some time in whatever way that we can that's special to say, let's actually sit down and talk to one another and listen. I to agree. Yeah. I agree. Completely agree. And it just, it, it, I think it makes the small gestures make a really big difference. Um, and it certainly helped that we had a lot of media there too. They felt yeah. very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's true. Did, um, did you have, so we've talked about some really good experiences people have shared with you and life-changing experiences. Did you have anyone or, and I know it's always, you're more likely probably to hear the good things than the bad things, but did you have anybody who as a result of the experiment, um, when you reached out or subsequently have been in contact said, it didn't really do much for me? Sure. When we did our follow-up survey, we had an open-ended area where people could share their comments. Some people said, uh, it's okay. I went, I came back. That was it. Yeah. Um, you know, other, there will always be people that will say, well, your materials, you know, they were lacking in this area and that right. area, they could have been better. Um, and that's a given, you know, we know ourselves, we can't include everything under the sun. Nope. So there, there had to be places we have to make cuts. Um, and I think there may have been one person that actually left, uh, the event in the middle of it. And I can't remember the reason. And that is normal. Yeah, sure. Um, and so there are people that are just kind of lukewarm about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think we actually got a pretty high, like 90 some response rate, 90 some percent response rate on our follow-up survey. So, so that's I would great. say most people that's do great. like us. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. So, okay. We'll talk about the podcast, but for the experiment itself, what's next? Is there going to be another America in one room weekend? What are, I, I know, and I know when we talked to Jim and Larry, like the expense is significant. You've got to find people yes. to fund that. So what's <laughs> happening with the general initiative? Where are you going now? Well, the podcast was definitely a part of it um, to, to, to keep that conversation going. I would say next steps are really thinking about how to continue the conversation on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, so we're right now thinking about how do you have conversations every so often throughout the year, um, whether on the same or different topics. And then the second thought is to scale, as you said, how do you scale the conversations? Mm -hmm. And uh, our center has been using a deliberation platform that we decided to build in the role of the moderator. And because of that, um, we can now scale the conversation to essentially any number of people to have small group discussions simultaneously. Uh, because really a lot of the restrictions in scaling is the quality of a moderator that you have. With yeah. 500 people, we had 40 some moderators that we had to train and ensure that they were all excellent. And that's hard to do. Sure. If we wanted to go beyond 500, go up to a thousand or a few thousand, or if we really wanted to scale and have millions of people deliberating at the same time, it's impossible to train that many quality moderators. 
So we, a couple of years ago, decided to build the role of moderator into our platform. So it's a mixture of AI and a group decision-making and we've been using it around the world very effectively um, and, and have seen excellent results as well. So we're using that model to hopefully be able to scale deliberation to uh, more and more people so they can have that experience more regularly. And when you say deliberate, I mean, I've been referring to this as conversations and talking about the, you know, the sort of different policies and that, and, and certainly when, uh, people listen to your podcast, they're going to hear people recounting some of the conversations that happen. Yes. Is deliberation, what, what characterizes deliberation versus just having a conversation about something? That's a really good question. I would say that a deliberation would require you to be weighing trade-offs on two sides, at least. So that when you're thinking about maybe something as simple as coffee or tea, that you're actually thinking, well, that has more caffeine than this, that may stain my teeth more than that, um, that you're really thinking about the pros and cons of either side of some kind of policy proposal versus a conversation. You may be talking about it, you know, agreeing with each other, maybe not really deep deep diving into the intricacies of the discussion, but I would say that a deliberation would require real uh, thought into Mm -hmm. what those pros and cons are and having that back and forth discussion with somebody. Versus just sort of emoting our feelings about something like, oh, I hate, you know, I hate this about this politician or whatever else. Which again, as you described the briefing materials, when you take out you know, mm-hmm. the administration or the Trump administration or the Biden administration, mm-hmm. you say the U.S., that totally forces yes. us back to the subject itself as opposed to how we feel about a particular. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so then the podcast, let's make sure everybody knows about it because I want everybody to go listen to it. So the experiment yes. was American One Room, and we will link to the information about the experiment. But the podcast is Voices of American One Room. And you have maybe 10 episodes in the first season. Is that right? Yeah. Something like that with one episode, a person. And the last one is, um, Daniel Lubetsky, who's the founder of chairman of kind snacks. And he's been really, um, in really involved in bridge building and had a a lot of experience in this area and the stories that he shared about his life and the work that he's been doing was, was really striking. Yeah. So is there a plan for a second season? Yes. I am. Excellent. I, I decided to get some fancy equipment because <laughs> um, this week, in addition to yours, yep. um, we just had an event called Shaping Our Future. Um, it was a collaborative event with the Haas Center at Stanford, Bergruen Institute and Equal Citizens, where we invited um, about 617 people in between the ages of 18 and 29 to have a deliberation on our platform. And they talked about electoral college reform, national service, and uh, economic inequality. That was the beginning of May. And now I invited um, a number of the participants back 
to have a follow-up discussion about the experience. And it's one of the rare opportunities um, that we had a national discussion for this age cohort specifically about what their views are for the future of the country. And uh, it'll be an exciting series to um, have them talk about these issues like minimum wage, universal basic income, things that are they're, they're really dealing with uh, day and night. Yeah. So, okay. That's great because we know in our audience, we have people who are doers, right? They want to figure out how to apply what they're hearing. So one thing we know people can do, we'll link in the show notes to the um, American in one room experiment, the information about it. So people can take a look at that. Some of the press coverage on it Two, We will link to the podcast. And I totally encourage people to listen to the podcast because it's um, it just really you know, listening to it, these people are not professional, you know, pundits or anything. They're telling you their experience. You get a sense too about the experiment and what their personal experience was and how it's changed them. Um, So we can link to that. If people want to be more actively engaged with the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford, what's the best way for them to do that? Reach out to us, contact us. We have a info email on our website. And uh, there are, yeah, just, just reach out and we'd love to have a conversation to see where you are, uh, what you want to do. Maybe we've had, an, I haven't had a number of conversations in the, over the last weeks where um, people are, you know, they have, everyone has an expertise in something. And so if we happen to be working on a project on healthcare, maybe they're a nurse, maybe they're a doctor, maybe they can help review some material. Um, so I like anyone you, they all have, I I think what I've learned from the podcast is everyone has their own experience, own, um, own views and expertise in whatever they're doing. And so we carry value in whatever shape or form and can always be helpful in, in what our center is doing. So I'm, I welcome the the context. Excellent. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, And as I say, we'll link in the show notes to all these things so everybody can check it out because there's really good stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. I, before we leave, I I want to share one more um, example, one more story from the, from the podcast that I, I think hopefully will resonate with people. And it was, it was the, um, young woman who has uh, two sons, one was graduating uh, this year. And um, she shared that the experience made her more confident in talking to her son about politics. Whereas before she would never have a conversation, any conversation about politics because she just knew nothing about it. And um, she didn't feel comfortable engaging in these types of conversations with her son. And it was after the event that coincidentally he turned 18 and she was able to go and vote with him for the first time. And they now have conversations about issues that they see in the news. They have back and forth. They deliberate. They talk about the issues. And it's been a new chapter in their life 
to have this shared experience about what it means to talk about healthcare and minimum wage and why certain policies work for her and not others. And it's given her so much confidence. And like that, that's the word she decided to use to, to um, be able to feel so comfortable with her son um, in, in the, in these situations. And there are a number of people that I've interviewed um, that use that word confident because oh prior to that, they only knew uh, their own point of view. But after America in One Room, after these types of deliberative polls, they gained 12 or 15 more views. And so they're able to say, hey, no, I met somebody who does work at X, Y, and Z. And they shared that they had this experience. And it, it just completely enlarged the worldview that they had, which is just priceless um, in being able to allow folks to have the type of confidence to engage in these types of discussions. And that's exactly what we need um, for people to have, to feel comfortable having these conversations. They don't need to be experts. Nope. We're not expecting anyone to be experts. We're just hoping that they learn from other people and be able to process, digest it and try to use it at some point in their lives. And I think the folks that I've talked to have, have definitely lived up to that. I love that. I love that idea that that those kinds of that's not just understanding, but in empowering people to have more conversations yes. like that mm -hmm. and to act uh, in their communities. Yeah. Because I do think regardless of whatever we think about polarization and toxicity and, you know, the media and that, I do think it's the case that most of us really want to see better things happen and and right. and to be able to, you know, work together to improve our communities and improve our own lives, however that gets played out. And I think we can't do that without, like, if we can't even have conversations, what can we really, you know, what can we really do? So I think that's a fantastic example and an opportunity to deepen your relationship with somebody yes. that you already know. I mean, it's her son, yes. right? Like, that's what I'm hoping. Those yeah. that are listening, that there's someone in your life that, you know, you may want to have that conversation with and just start, you know, exploring together. And if they were able to do that, it would be amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be so much more added value uh, in their lives. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and if I could encourage you to take one thing away this week, it would definitely be go check out Alice's podcast, Voices of America in One Room, so that you can hear the stories she was describing, but hear them firsthand from the people who are sharing their experience. There really are some amazing things there, and I will certainly take away from this conversation, as I do from every one of those episodes that I've listened to, how much impact conversations can have on people's lives, how much especially putting ourselves in vulnerable positions where we're listening to people who disagree with us, where we're risking conflict, verbal conflict at least, um, how much that can change the way we see the world. It can change how we participate in our own you know, system of government, how we can participate in our communities but also can change our relationships with people we thought we knew really well. 
Um, I think that what Alice has described is probably, from my point of view, one of the most important things we can learn about why it's important to talk to one another, even when those conversations can be a little uncomfortable. And on the subject of learning um, and even being uncomfortable, I hope that you will take an opportunity, wherever you get this podcast, to leave a rating for us and give us a review. We want to learn from what you think because this podcast exists, we hope, to help you have better conversations, to help you have the confidence to have conversations about issues that matter to you. So please do give us some feedback and let us know how we're doing. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.